Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Primarily Context-Based. This is a podcast that's inspired by a single line of text on the website Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow is a Q&A site where questions are intended to have a single right answer, and questions can be closed and archived because they're primarily opinion-based. Well, we think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer because they're primarily context-based. And in this podcast, we're going to take one of those questions, talk about a range of answers for it and the context that makes them appropriate. I'm the CEO of Skillerwell, and for the last 10 years, I've been CTO at a variety of companies. I've run an event called Tech Leader Dinners, where tech leaders come together and help answer each other's difficult questions. And I've been a CTO coach. And one of the things I've noticed is that the same questions come up again and again, but with different answers every time. And that's because context is critical. This podcast is a collaboration between CTO Craft and Skillerwell, and I'm really pleased to say that helping us answer today's question is the leader and figurehead of CTO Craft, Andy Skipper. Andy, it's great to see you. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Great to see you too, Hill. And I like that figurehead. I'm going to use that in my business cards. Um, but I'm a, a CTO by background, so I've been in CTO-like roles since 2006. Um, and really the last uh, three to five years have all been uh, coaching and uh, and consulting focused, basically. Um, and as Hill says, I, I run CTO Craft, which is a, a mentoring community for CTOs and senior technology leaders uh, of about two and a half thousand people, I think, as of today. Basically, we offer coaching and uh, training and uh, events. We have a conference coming up, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, that's me. Amazing. Well, I'm really excited to get your thoughts on today's question, um, which is, how do I measure the efficiency of my tech organization? Um, I think that's a question that we've probably both heard a lot in mentoring roles from other people, and it's one that's often very hard to answer. One of the reasons for that is it comes from a lot of different places. So for example, you might be worried about efficiency because you want to optimize what your team and what your organization are capable of. Maybe um, your resources are fixed, but the demands on you are increasing and you need to, you want to be able to do more with the same number of people. You might be coming at it from a point of view of evaluation. So it's really common for non-technical people to ask for some kind of measure of efficiency from the tech team. I know of organizations where accountability is seen as key and there can be some grumbling if the tech team appears to be beyond the reach of measures and metrics. And then the third reason you might want to measure efficiency is in order to predict about the future. So if you're maybe you're planning your hiring, you're planning a, a technical strategy, or I can think of situations where I wanted to make a change to how the team is working, or maybe there's a large project that I want to undertake, which I have the belief is going to make us more efficient. Maybe there's a large bit of tech debt that we want to address. Being able to have some measures of the before and after will help either confirm or deny the idea that that was useful to do. Often this question of efficiency um, gets muddled up with the ideas of productivity and efficacy, but really those are all words saying the same thing. There's some desirable output that we want, and we've got some limited resource input, and we want to get the most of the good output um, from as little of the limited input that we can. Inputs are very easy to measure. Often they're things like salary, they're things like number of people in your team, um, they're things like budget. Efficiency can be much harder because what developers do is knowledge work where less can be more, where the output might be intangible and where there's a big variable of quality and um, where the same output in appearance might have 
lower quality that only becomes obvious sometime in the future. Andy, do you have anything to add to any of that about the question itself? Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a cultural aspect to this as well. So, you know, there, um, it, you can certainly say that productivity, efficacy, and efficiency are essentially striving for the same thing, but that, that same thing is generally different in different organizations and different stages of organization. You know, for example, a, an early stage startup might be striving specifically for speed of delivery because they're trying to get something to market. They're trying to, to prove it. And then some later stage startup or scale up or larger organization, their focus may be entirely on improving the quality of releases and reducing downtime. So I think from, from a cultural perspective, the focus of a company and the focus of what they're actually aiming for is as important as what they tweak to get to that point. Mm. There's, there's the adage, isn't there, that what you measure is essentially what you'll improve or what you'll target. Um, things that can't be measured become the things that you don't improve, uh, which is That's which right. is often why the, the wrong measure can lead to odd behaviors. Um, so a good mutual friend of ours, Andy, was, was telling me only recently about um, how call centers work. One call center decided that they wanted their customers to feel more of a personalized experience. And so they were measuring all of their teams by whether they use the customer's name three times across a call. And of course, what that led to is every call would begin with, hi, Andy, is that Andy there? Do you mind if I call you Andy, Andy? And of course, the measure is met, but it's the least personalized. Uh, fourth, that was four times, times. You're yeah. right. Even worse. <laughs> Maybe I've, um, I've overshot my, my metrics by 33% for this month. Yeah. yeah. Quite so. yeah. <laughs> but the wrong measures can lead to the wrong outcomes. Um, I had, a, had some friends who worked for a very large software company uh, that everyone has definitely heard of. We're working on their flagship product in the mid-90s. And they, were, they had something like two weeks to go until the big deadline when they were kind of finally going to compile this thing, put it to disk and ship. And the organization were very keen that there were zero bugs in this release. And so they said that for every bug that was fixed during that two-week window, the developer who fixed it would get a bonus of, I think it was $1,000. Crumbs. Exactly. And so, of course, what happened is that people were very strongly incentivized because the same people were finding those bugs as we're writing the code to create problems, <laughs> find those problems, fix those problems, and then collect their reward, which actually is, is, is bad in the obvious way that people are are essentially getting money for doing for creating problems that they then solve themselves. But also their productive time that could have been spent fixing actual bugs was spent on essentially stalling, on making next to zero progress in the product. And so there's, there's a problem here with measures that can be gained. You don't want to use measures that can be manipulated where there's a feedback loop that incentivizes people to manipulate them. So if you use these measures and use them to determine promotions or bonuses or even just gold stars and good vibes or, you know, the, the head of product was happy because this measure changed, that can be enough to sway the work of the team and mean that the measures get gamed. Mm, absolutely. I think at the same time, though, it's, uh, it's, important to, it's important to note that uh, you can do quite a lot of damage by not trusting your engineers. I think that that's why so many engineers push back on being measured in general, because it feels like a, uh, a deterioration in trust. You know, it's a, it's quite a Taylorist view that 
given the chance and an employee or a team member will try and game the system or will try and get more than their their fair dues and and i i i do push back on this sometimes especially with uh commercial parts of the business um where they assume that developers will do anything to do as as little mm-hmm. as possible <laughs> um which isn't necessarily true and in fact you know i think uh, you know a bit of anecdata the number of times that i've seen an engineer trying to game the system, even when there were financial incentives, I could probably number on the fingers of one hand. Right. I one finger. <laughs> <laughs> I fully agree with the need to trust people. I think it's it's the strength of incentives for them for people to act in bad faith is something you need to be careful of. So anyone who's kind of on the borderline between good faith and bad faith and the kind of and as you said, the sort of tailorist pursuit of personal gain. You don't want to push people over that line if you can avoid it. And so you're, you're definitely right about the need to, to trust people and treat pe- and work openly with people and treat them with respect and assume good faith. But it's also important to make sure that the incentives that might pull them in a different direction are fairly weak. Yeah, agreed with that. Yeah. Hopefully the incentives of being a, a trustworthy employee are generally high in, in most of the teams that, that we would be leading, I would hope. Yeah, hopefully so. You'd you'd want to think that the, especially in earlier stage companies, that the engineering team would be as incentivized by the success of the business as um, as a bonus. Mm. And, and I'd say again, anecdata, but I'd say most of the startup engineering teams that I've worked with have been more incentivized by that than the paycheck. Mm. Anecdata, as I say. <laughs> yeah. So it might be a good moment to switch to talking about specific measures. Um, maybe, Andy, you could share some kinds of metrics that you've used that have seemed successful and, and why you think they were successful, and maybe some measures that you haven't used or that you've used and were unsuccessful or measures that you think you would never use. Yeah, I mean, the uh, the one North Star metric that I always come back to with engineering teams is, is cycle time, which is it's almost one of the uh, the four Dora metrics from Accelerate, but but not quite. It's, um, uh, it's a, a subset of lead time, which is the actual Dora metric. And I, I prefer to at least start with cycle time in engineering teams because it, uh, it excludes the, the discovery and the design parts of the, um, of the product development process. So it focuses entirely on what the engineers are doing. Um, and I think it's, it's just a good, easy metric to, to look at as a team, you know, because it, it is an average, which means it doesn't matter whether they're large or small projects or tasks, it doesn't matter which team or person is working on them. It's just a blended average. And as a, mm-hmm. as a way of seeing the rate of improvement or deterioration or spikes, anomalies, then it's, a, it's, it's actually a very easy one to, to start using. So I agree. I like cycle time a lot as a, as a measure um, because, because it, it's the kind of the, the lower bound on, it gives you the lower bound on how fast you can make improvements and it, it defines the kind of speed of iteration of the product itself. I'm curious about how you would apply it in an environment where the release schedule was fixed, maybe by something, some externality that meant that you couldn't get cycle time down as low as you might like. Well, I suppose if you measure cycle time up to the point of it being ready for release rather than actually being deployed, then it's still a useful metric. If, if you are having to to batch all your tasks into, I don't know, monthly, biweekly releases, 
then yes, that doesn't make sense to to use the actual release as the the endpoint. If you if you use the done point, I guess as the uh, as the endpoint for the cycle time, that still works. Mm. And you mentioned about the Dora metrics from Accelerate. Maybe you could talk through what those metrics are and how you how you viewed them. Yeah, sure. So um, these are metrics that the um, the guys and girls at Dora actually came to uh, after a whole load of uh, research and after a whole load of surveys and, and analytical picking through how successful teams function, basically. And what they ended up with were deployment frequency, uh, mean lead time, which, as I said before, that's that's kind of a, a superset of the cycle time plus the discovery phase. Uh, the mean time to recover, or how long it takes for a, a system to come back up after it after it dies, and then the change failure rate (CFR), which is basically how often some kind of bug makes it into the live environment. Those four basically were all uh, defined from the data from all these surveys they did, so that um, they are proven in a way, <laughs> at mm. least from at least from that data set, to be the four metrics that's the most productive and efficient teams measure. Mm. And I think as well, the, the the metrics where the teams that excel more at those metrics, not just hit their targets more, but if they exceed their targets, they the company exceeds its its revenue goals by more. Like th- those metrics basically become good predictors of commercial success as well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the mean time to recovery, uh, which is a metric of quality. Do you have measures you like to use around quality, around bugs or anything like that for development teams? Yeah, I'm sure. So, I mean, I'd, I'd actually class it as a metric around reliability and scalability um, rather than quality. I think quality is only, only one aspect of it. But in, in terms of quality, I mean, other other metrics can be based on the, num- the number of different levels of severity of bug that, uh, that are recorded. Um, the the cycle time of bug fixes, you know, the time from them being reported to them being fixed. <clears throat> then, yeah, a whole bunch of others. Those are the main two I would use. So certainly bug count and particularly critical bug count is important to me. And the I think of it as the dwell time. It's like the lifetime of a bug before it gets stomped on and killed. And then in teams I've worked in where there's been a dedicated QA function. I think there's something about the rejection rate from QA that tells you about how well how well developers are trying, um, which isn't quite the same as efficiency, but an, an efficient team would have developers who are trying well and would not have so many cycles between QA and development. And so measuring that, and I guess flow in general, actually. So I, I like to measure the flow of, of, um, of work through the system. And that to me, while not a measure of efficiency, is a really good proxy for it. Um, so measuring the kind of the amount of time that a particular ticket spends in a swim lane, for example, in a Kanban board um, before moving on. I think tells me something about how efficient my process is overall. Um, and that's a measure of the, the process, I think, more than the individuals in it. Um, 
as well as measuring the kind of time that tickets spend waiting. And I know that actually lots of tools now are pretty good at exposing that. So I believe in Jira, for example, the like Atlassian product for managing agile workflows, um, it will tell you how many days a given ticket has spent in a different column. Yeah. In fact, you can you can use things like the cognitive flow diagram in Jira to show you where these bottlenecks are happening. You can see when tickets are getting stuck before testing. That can help you spot bottlenecks and silos and so on and so forth. But yeah, very useful. Mm. And of course, one of the, the main things that people use Jira for is running their scrum process, which I think naturally leads to a conversation about estimates and velocity and how you measure efficiency or do you measure efficiency using any of those? Personally, never. I, I would never use something that's based on um, a point in time estimate um, to measure the productivity of a team. The only thing you can measure against it is how accurate estimates are. Which is a useful, uh, useful measure, but again, it's one of these things that you need to to build up over time. And developers generally get better at estimating. When uh, better is probably the wrong word, they get more accurate at estimating as a project or a product development process uh, moves along. So you know, I don't think it's necessarily a particularly useful per project measure anyway. But certainly, velocity um, that is. I think the metric that I've seen misused the most in engineering teams where they, they have been forced to put some kind of measure on what they do, it's generally velocity. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. It's also, I think, the most gameable metric because most of the time the estimates that you're using come from the developers themselves. And so if you're if you're kind of measuring the number of the percentage of estimates that were hit suddenly everyone is incentivized to make every piece of work estimated at three months long, which is useless to you. If you're measuring velocity and there is any incentive for a higher velocity, well, I'm incentivized to, uh, again, attribute huge numbers of story points to things so that our velocity looks artificially high. Um, mm. But yeah, as you say, where I have found success with those things is in environments where I needed to know when something was going to be delivered and to be able to predict, because again, of extern external factors, to predict when something was going to be live and ready, in which case a properly set up kind of estimation velocity process uh, gave me quite a lot of confidence that, that we were able to do to get the product released before this demo day to this big customer. Mm. How would you define a, a properly set up process in that sense? Um, that's a great question. I suppose really it's one that works, which is a slightly circular uh, argument. So I've, my experience has been that people are really bad at estimating time, um, that time estimates are are ones that people are hard with because people confuse confuse time at desk with hours of work, for example. So if I say something's going to take me one day, I might think if I had eight hours of sitting down, I could do that thing. But of course, my one work day uh, is filled with meetings and conversations and code reviews for other people. And so tying people, tying people's working time, essentially tying their clock time to their wall time doesn't make much sense. I feel like I've probably used the wrong terminology there. CPU time to wall time. I don't know. <laughs> time, time the, the time that people spend productive on something versus the time that passes on the calendar uh, 
it doesn't work well. I found that that if I use numerical points, the same association happens. If there's a linear mapping from the, the numbers people are telling me to time, then when I say, is this a three or a five? They say, oh, well, we know that a three is about one and a half hours or, or whatever, and mm. the system breaks. The time I've had this working best was using um, sizing. So getting people to estimate on on tasks and stories as extra small, small, medium, or large. And if it was bigger than a large, it was extra large. And so we'd break it down, break the definition of the task down further and then estimate on those subcomponents. And then I also got them to do the same thing um, for the three months of work prior to starting the estimate system. And I used that data to then secretly assign an amount of elapsed time to each of those story sizes. And then I used the elapsed time in conversations with the head of product and the product director um, to help them make predictions about the future. But it wasn't something I ever held the development team to account on because I didn't want there to be any gaming in the system. Uh, that that was a well-set-up process for that team. Um, and so I suppose really when I said a well-set-up process, what I really mean is one where the estimates are roughly working for you as well as can be expected. Does yeah. that? How does that fit with what you've experienced? Yeah, I think pretty similar, to be honest. Um, I've certainly seen other companies use, um, uh, or, or rather stop using sprints altogether, so not thinking in terms of, um, fixed length iterations, which means they did, they essentially don't need to convert sizing to um, to time because they're just working continuously, and that that's worked for some companies. For some companies where they had very very strict timescales for the things they were working on, you know, for compliance or public holidays in the uh, the e commerce world and that kind of thing. There were mm. specific dates that they had to work towards. And um, yeah, a good example of that was Comic Relief, actually, where essentially because they have one telethon night a year, they have that that one fixed, unmovable deadline that everything has to be focused on. Um, yeah, but in terms of converting sizes, whether it's t-shirt sizes or whatever, to time, I think, as you say, that's something that kind of has to be done outside of the team at a higher level for roadmapping purposes, you would never really want to do that within a team setting. So you're saying to them, okay, we're forcing you to use these Fibonacci numbers or t-shirt sizes or whatever, but actually what you mean is half a day because then that, that starts to, that starts to infiltrate how they think of the work themselves and how they plan their own work, which you don't want to do. Yeah. No, exactly. And then how do you think about the fit between these measures and overall company outcomes or project outcomes. So if you were measuring things like the revenue or the the NPS, the net promoter score, essentially the happiness of the the users of the product, do you see those as effective measures to use for a development organization? Not directly, unless it's a technology focused company or a deep tech company or a you know a company where everything is focused on the, the technology. In a tech-enabled business, certainly not. The, the engineering metrics should be directly relatable to the business metrics, in my opinion, but they shouldn't be the, the business metrics, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. Um, 
Do you have a good definition people can use for whether they're in a kind of whether they're in an engineering company or an engineering enabled company or a tech enabled company? Yeah, well, I suppose one one simple uh, one simple definition would be if you're running a, a software as a service company, you're essentially completely focused on that software. Mm-hmm. If you're in a company that's selling greetings cards or flowers, then you're in a tech enabled company. The technology is enabling the selling of those products. Mm-hmm. If you're in a an AI company, then that is again you're you're selling models slash software around models whatever so that is a a tech first company mm, right so where the, the tech is the product exactly yeah got it and then i feel like there's a couple of classes of metrics that we've both skirted around that maybe we should address head-on so one is metrics on code itself and um, so i i've never been in an organization that measured it's it's engineers by their lines of code, but I think that is a thing that happens and you hear about acquisitions where the number of lines of code is considered an important metric. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Is that a measure you would use? Mm, no, is the, the simple <laughs> answer. I mean, they, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. They're, again, going back to the split between software first and, um, and software-enabled, tech-enabled businesses, I think if you are looking at being acquired, for example, then the efficiency of the code itself is very important and the the maintainability and scalability of the code itself is important. So maybe not lines of code, but stuff like how decoupled the code is, you know, how many outstanding bugs there are, that kind of thing. Mm, and, all my bugs are outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but other than that, I think, you know, if you uh, if you were to pick one application that's been written in Python, and then you were to to say, okay, we're going to build exactly the same thing in Scala, mm. then it's probably a, probably a bad bad one to choose. But essentially, <laughs> the number of lines of code immediately changes, right? Because it's slightly you, you do things in a slightly different way in a functional uh, mm. language like Scala. So it's not really it's not really fair to say. Um, there should be a maximal number of lines of code in, in the application that you're building. But yeah, yeah, it's a silly measure. I'm sorry, I'm going to go that far. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're right. And it's, yeah, it's a silly measure, I think because it entirely loses the point of what we do, which is not to write code for computers to read. The, the more of it, more of it is not better. Um, we care about the the outcomes of our teams, I think, not the... Right kind of amount of times they've pressed enter while coding. That's it. The other class of measures we haven't talked about is ones around time. Um, I think maybe for good reason. So one that people are likely to hear about in other parts of their organizations would be hours in work, the number of hours that developers are at the office, maybe on the presumption that more time in work means a more efficient team. Um, And then there's also measures around the percentage of time that people are waiting for work. So if you're in a large enough organization where you're waiting for units of work to kind of flow through the process to you, um, you might have people who are idle for high percentages of their working time. What do you think about those measures? Are those ones that you've used? Um, They're ones that I've rallied against. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'd go that far. So let's 
let's take them the uh, the wrong way around. So the first, uh, the second one, where you're you're essentially measuring how long people are idle in the flow of a, of a project or a piece of work. That's a that's a measurement of the the process, or rather, that's a a view of how well the process is working and uh, how well a company is removing bottlenecks and um, and evening up the uh, the flow. Um, which isn't a it's not a, a measure of the team, its ability to develop things. Um, it's an ability of the the process to get work through the uh, the flow quickly enough. Um, mm. I, I don't think it's a particularly useful measure, personally. I think there's some measure of efficiency in there. It might help you identify where there's a bottleneck, so that if you do have quite a quite a lot of hoops to jump through, maybe you've got a kind of compliance team and a security team who have to review everything before it goes live, say, um, then measuring the, the idle worker time there might help you get the right the right balance of people in those teams or the right balance of emphasis of work but it's it's maybe not a great overall measure mm-hmm. yeah this is this is it i think it's good as a, a measure or rather as a uh, a view into how to improve a process or how to optimize it's not necessarily good as an as an, mm. a measure to define the incentives that should be made available to to engineers or a team or whatever mm, yeah I agree. You know that that's a, a very relevant thing for the um, the times that we're in, right? And since the beginning of the pandemic, I think uh, a lot of older school companies have had to understand the the potential benefits of having people working in on remote times and in remote settings. You know, I think the the two are probably quite intertwined. It's not just about how much time a person is in front of their computer doing the work for a company, but where they are as well. You know. I think, especially with um, families having to to homeschool and uh, all the complexities that we've had over the last year, we've just had to become a lot more tolerant of um, of uh, of how much time can be spent in front of a computer doing the uh, the development work that they're supposed to be doing. But I think a lot of these companies that are experimenting with it for the first time are enjoying the results. You know, engineers have been telling managers for ever basically that they can be just as efficient and get just as much done on a flexible time uh, basis um, as they could being stuck to a desk from nine till six every day and they've been vindicated over the last year you know, I think a lot of the the companies that I'm speaking to are not planning to go back to regular hours in front of a computer um, and that's all for the better and that's mm. a question of trust as well that that trust has just been built up over the last year where it didn't exist before. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true, actually. And I like you, I hope it does stay that way, not just because of productivity, but I think it gives people a lot more flexibility in their, in the rest of their lives if they can be remote. Right. And the other, other half of that is talking about measuring the amount of hours spent working, which could be remote or in an office. So some companies, for example, might ask their their dev teams to use to track their time and measure how many hours they're working each day, each week. How do you approach using that as a measure? I don't think it should necessarily be used as a measure. I mean, it's it is useful for a team to do that in some in some cases. You know, in in a consultancy or an agency situation, for example, it's it's almost imperative because you you need to know how much time an engineer or a team is spending on a specific client's project. 
But in general, I think it can be a useful exercise to do from time to time anyway. But once again, I, I don't see it as a, a useful measure by which a, a team should be incentivized or otherwise. And I don't think necessarily it helps you optimize. You know, your optimization should be based on the output, not the input. Mm, yeah, I think that's totally true. When I first started my career, I worked for a consultancy and had to measure my time to build the clients and actually discovered that the the act of measuring was one of the things that slowed me down most because it, it just gave me another step to remember every time I switched context or every time I changed up what I was doing. Measuring isn't without a cost. And a lot of the measures that we have talked about are ones that you can extract from other tools that that you're using, like a JIRA. Um, whereas hours in hours worked, I think is something that people have to consciously think about and consciously go out of their way to measure, um, which does then come at a cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Andy. I think this is going to have been a really useful conversation for people to listen to and think critically about the measures that they use and how they use them. Before we go, could you tell everyone a bit about CTO Craft and the kind of benefits they would get from being part of the community? Sure, sure. So essentially people come to, to CTO Craft when they um, uh, are lacking a community of people to speak to about um, the typical challenges that a senior level leader faces. Um, and as I said before, they're, they're mostly startup and scale up CTOs, um, some of them potentially in their first CTO level role. And we help them by providing them with a platform and a, a group of people to uh, to ask questions of a safe environment, essentially. And we have various um, various levels of help that we offer them, like uh, mentoring groups, mastermind groups, one-to-one um, -one coaching. And we're working on our, our first set of training uh, materials as well, which will cover things like things like metrics and measurements and things like one-to-ones uh, and uh, and how to deal with the the first ninety days in a new CTO role, that kind of thing. And uh, so that's that's all on the horizon. Oh, perfect! And can you tell people how they find it? Sure, uh, ctocraft.com is the uh, is the website address. And um, if you're a a CTO or a technology leader, then come along, fill in the form, we'll get you added. Amazing. Great. Well, this has been the first episode of Primarily Context-Based. Next time we will talk about another question that's primarily context-based. So we hope you'll join us then. Amazing. Thanks, Andy. And thanks for your insights today. I hope we've given you, the listeners, some food for thought to answer this question for your own individual context. You'll want to start by considering whether you're trying to optimize the team to evaluate them or whether you're trying to predict what's to come. And think carefully about what you want to see and measure that, not some proxy for it. Be particularly careful of using measures that can be gained because incentives risk pulling people in the wrong direction, even if those incentives are purely social and purely about the kind of good vibes people get from making other people in their, their organization happy. That's it for this week's episode. And next time I'm going to be talking about the thorny issue and hot topic of whether you should be following the Pied Pipers of Kubernetes. To help understand the context for that decision, I'm going to be joined by the CEO of the Scale Factory, John Topper. 